0: Shalom from here in the Holy Land. Welcome to Conversations with Yael podcast. I'm your host, Yael Eckstein, President and CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Each month, I will invite leading thought leaders, pastors, rabbis, and other influential guests to discuss the importance of Israel in the world today. For those familiar with my weekly podcast, Nourish Your Biblical Roots, which explores the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, this podcast takes that understanding and translates it into ongoing support for Israel among Christians and the critical need to nurture that support with the next generation of Christians. Join me now as we begin this important dialogue. This month, Jews in Israel and around the world will pause in remembrance of one of the worst chapters in human history, the Holocaust, when six million Jewish souls, men, women, and children, perished at the hands of the Nazis. Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day, is observed on the week after Passover and a week before Yom Hazikaron, Israel Memorial Day. The day was first instituted by the Knesset in 1951, and it has become a day commemorated by Jewish communities and individuals throughout the world. For years, the mantra of the Holocaust has been, never forget. As Jews pledged, we will never let this happen again. Today, as these words have taken on new meaning and urgency, as a shocking number of adults under 40 have never heard the word Holocaust before. Anti-Semitism, which gave rise to the Holocaust, is on the rise throughout the world. More than ever, we need to be vigilant and proactive about educating the next generation, lest history, God forbid, repeat itself. Which is why I am so honored to welcome my guest, my friend, someone I admire dearly to the podcast today, Alicia Wiesel, son of Nobel Peace Prize recipient and Holocaust survivor Ellie Wiesel, whose book Night details his experience in the notorious death camps Auschwitz and Buchenwald and his struggle to come to terms with what he witnessed there. Alicia is a businessman, having worked 25 years at Goldman Sachs, as well as an activist, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. Alicia, welcome to my podcast.
1: Yael, it's so great to be with you. Thank you.
0: I've been following your work and your brilliant wisdom that you uh, really inspire so many, just as your father did, and you continue in his spirit, but with your own, your own unique niche to it. And so I know it's been a process getting there, and every stage in life is different. So let's start from the beginning, Alicia. Growing up, when would you first say that you became aware of your father's place in history?
1: It's a great question. But first of all, before I answer that, I just have to observe I'm not the only one with a tremendous legacy to follow. And of course, I follow you and your family with incredible respect for the incredible alliances that you've been building uh, here in the States and around the world to support Israel and all that Israel represents. So I, I have to say that the fellowship you've created, really, um, my family and I have an intense respect for. So I wanted Thank to recognize so much, that.
0: Alicia. Thank you
1: so much, Alicia. You know, I really learned a lot about my father's role in the world through an ambient learning process. I I can't remember specific moments that my father sat me down and said, this is exactly what happened. Uh, I, you know, I sort of absorbed a lot of it. Because my friends would be going on trips to Palm Beach or the Hamptons for their vacations, and we'd be going to visit Polish death camps. And this was at a very young age for me. And I realized that I was not in the usual family, that I was in a family that had experienced a great tragedy. And slowly, over, over many years, the pieces of the puzzle came together for me.
0: That's amazing. Um, I know, as a child, I read the book *Night* at school. Did you ever have experiences at school that you realized that you had to study or read your father's book and your own, uh, your own family history?
1: It started really more as a question than an answer. I remember being on the playground at age seven or eight and talking with all the other kids about, well, what does your dad do? What does your dad do? And, you know, one kid would be like, ah, oh, well, you know, my my father used to be an Air Force pilot, you know, in the Israeli Air Force, and now he flies planes for El Al. And then the other guy would say, oh, well, you know, my father is a pharmacist. He makes people feel better. And I would say, yeah. gosh, I I, I I know my father went through something horrible. I just don't know much more than that. Um yeah. So it really wasn't until much later that the the pieces came together for me. But they did not read night at the yeshiva where I went to school. And I don't know if it's they skipped it for a year because my father asked them to so as to not torture Uh me with it, um, or, or whether they just didn't have a practice at that time. So I never had to read it for school. I did obviously read it on my own as a teenager. But it wouldn't surprise me if my dad had made that ask because I will say that he was incredibly respectful and protective of me. I think he realized what a burden it was to be the son of survivors um, and to be the only son of an only son that had survived and just the the tremendous pressure that could create. So he actually would often go out of his way to shield me from that when he could. I
0: have... So many thoughts on that, and so much that I relate to in everything that you said. Um, I feel like in so many ways you described my childhood. Um, I remember when I was younger, as the teacher asked, "What do What do your parents do for a living?" I would basically hide under my desk because I didn't know (laughs) my father helps people he saves people there are people who are hungry and he goes and brings them food but it's so much easier to say my father's a lawyer my father's a teacher (laughs) my father's a policeman so yeah to it's oftentimes that really kind of impactful new work the uh the bridge building, the uh, trailblazing work—that is hard to define for a child in one word. Of what does your father do? And and also how how your father protected you. I love that because that was, I think, out of. All of the lessons that my father taught me, that's one uh, that maybe I I recognize and appreciate the most, that um, when he came into the house, he left all of his struggles and burdens and controversy behind and came into the house simply as Abba, as father. And he didn't want us to carry that pain and hardship and all the different um, difficulties of starting something new, educating the world on a new way. In your case describing in detail what he went through so uh so it's beautiful that your father just like my father wanted you just to be (laughs) alicia his beautiful child and not to carry that that heavy weight of being the son of ellie weisel
1: I, you know, I have two responses to that. The first is um, my younger child, who is 13, just had to read Night in their school. And I yeah. got to see it all play out in front of me. Like, what pressure? What if they got something like a, a B on their essay on Night? How traumatizing would that be? You know, imagine being the grandchild of Elie Wiesel and not getting an A when it came time to, to write the essay on Night. So I, right. I felt a lot of empathy for that, you know, and I got to see it for the next generation. Um, Yeah. The the other thing I want to comment on, though, is, you know, my father, this protecting me, it also was a question of emphasis. And I think what he wanted me to take away from my heritage. I think my father did not want me to just think of myself as a Holocaust descendant. I think he wanted mm-hmm. to me to think of myself as a Jew, as a as a proud Jew, with a connection to what that meant. And it wasn't just that we'd been attacked. Well, we stood for something. And what was that? And that was many things. That was a joyful Shabbat dinner table where the family came together and put away the, the concerns of the world for a moment and just focused on that that family time and that and that connection to God and that connection to history and where we came from and what those values were. So I think of those lessons for my father as he didn't just shield me, but he also wanted me to understand what it meant to grow up as a a joyful Jew, a practicing Jew, uh, one who was literate with our customs and our faith and and a connection to our people, and what that meant beyond it. Uh, So it wasn't just a protecting, it was also an opening of a door.
0: I love that. There's there's one thing to be against something, and there's something else to be for something. And it sounds like your father was was teaching you, yes, you have to despise evil, you have to know about evil, but that's not your identity. Your identity is you have to bring light, you have to bring faith, you have to be a proud Jewish person, you have to stand on these values of our ancestors and simply standing against the evils of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust isn't how he wanted you to. Define yourself, which is basically how it wasn't how he wanted his legacy to be defined. He wanted his legacy, because you are his legacy, to be defined as a proud Jew, a beautiful person of faith who who stands on the side of life and light and not only against darkness.
1: I, I think that's right. And you know, when I had conversations with my father on how did he want to be remembered, he was very clear. He said, I want to be remembered as a good Jew. Hmm. Period. Wow. That's all he said. And you can unpack so much in that because for my father that meant to be identified with his faith and his people but it also meant for him to take that as a platform and to do great things in the world with it to do things that show jewish values and how we interact with the non-jewish world and and how we can act as as a light and how we can go out and 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 help people because it's the right thing to do all of that i think was wrapped up in in his phrase to be a good jew
0: that's beautiful so as you were growing up, it sounds like you were holding so many different worlds and realities and understanding of different concepts. Um, What was your understanding of the Holocaust? And was it something that was discussed with you uh, at all? And how did your father explain that to you?
1: You know, we didn't have a lot of direct conversations. You know, it wasn't until I was 25 uh, sorry, not 25, I apologize, 20, 21, it was in 1995. So what was I, I have to do the math for a moment, I was 23. And I uh, I got it so long ago. And um, <laughs> my father, my cousin, who's like a brother to me, and I all went on a trip where we went for my first time to Siget, my father's hometown in Romania that he had been deported from along with his family. And then we went from Siget to Auschwitz. And I have to say that I can't say I really fully understood the Shoah, and no one can understand the Shoah, but I didn't understand it to the potential of which I'm capable of understanding it, not when I went to Auschwitz, but when I went to Sieget, and when I saw what it meant that you could still identify the homes where there had been Mizuzot. you can still say wow there were 10,000 Jews in this place and now there's almost nothing you just have abandoned cemeteries and to see where Jews lived and realize that they stood for something they had they had families they had they were they were running around and doing things they were living life to their fullest and to be there with my father i almost felt like we had a special radio with us that could pick up signals that could pick up these ghosts that nobody else could see, but that he saw. We would turn a corner and he would, you know, hear something or feel something or see something that none of the rest of us could experience. And it was hitting him powerfully over and over and over. And for the first time, I really saw my father vulnerable and I Mm -hmm. saw him a little bit as someone who had once been a child that had experienced these things and that trip really forever changed my my personal ability to comprehend the Shoah uh,
0: that's Amazing. That that is an amazing uh, experience to see. For I think for any child to see their parent in that situation of going back to being a child in the town of their childhood is is an incredible thing. You see a different side of your parent that you never saw before. But especially what you're describing of, of it's not only your father's childhood. It's something that was lost to the world. It's part of history that we lost after the Holocaust, that you were able to go back there and experience it through your father. And that idea of not being able to comprehend the Holocaust uh, that you mentioned earlier, how could you understand the Holocaust, is something that that I relate to a lot. I remember when I was uh, in middle school, also many, many years ago, um, around Yom HaShoah, the uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, What the school did was they put up a a clock that counted up to 6 million and that every second kind of represented someone who would have been killed. And it took over two months to count every second from zero to 6 million. And I remember every day where I came into school, I would think all night, all day, all week. And it was the first time, and something that stuck with me, that a little bit I was able to comprehend the enormity of this number six million that's so hard to digest. Um, and so I think that when you go back to this individual town and you see the Jewish life that was once there, and you see in your father the memories and the experiences and the vulnerabilities that he had there, I'm, I'm sure that. That's something that, when you think of the Holocaust or Jewish world before the Holocaust, that it, that stuck with you. So, are there a, one or two stories that you can share from that visit that that we can learn and connect with?
1: You know, the the stories that I have are are both about sort of what we observed. You know, going to the abandoned shul and seeing all of the gnizot, the 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 Torah fragments that had been burned you know, and left gathering bird droppings to see this place of prayer in such disrepair with the most sacred of scrolls scattered everywhere. You know, I took for myself just a page of a simple alphabet, the Jewish or Hebrew alphabet that children learn from, just as a memento from that. These were all sacred pages and sacred places. And you have a sense of there was a lively community here who came and 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 prayed and sang and rejoiced and 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 feared and and raised their kids and to just and to just see it reduced to what it had been reduced to, um, and uh, it was it was it was very profound for me to see that. But the thing that I remember really most from that trip was all the different conversations I had, you know, with my father in that in that very special place, um, where I remember, for example that when we arrived there was one old Jewish woman who must have been in her nineties at the time who came out and recognized my father. And ah. she said, Ellie? She said, you know, or laser, the Katanchik, she called him, which is Hebrew for, you know, the, the small boy. one. The little boy. Right. Ah. And it reminded me, not only was he a little boy, but, you know, it it was um this moment where I realized that this person who had once been a little boy, who I in some sense almost always saw as so meek, so quiet. You know, my father almost never raised his voice. He uh, he was not physically strong. If you go back to my playground thinking, I was never going to say, "Oh, my dad can beat up your dad." Like my dad was never that right. guy. Um, he was sort of the opposite of that. And then for the first time, I realized, you know that, you know, one can be a katanchik in stature and still be an incredibly strong person on the world stage and in terms of one's moral values and how one carries themselves. Um, And I remember really having that realization on the trip. And, you know, the trip came at a time I, I I, I had not been the best of sons in some sense. I was a very rebellious teenager. I had decided to be done with Judaism. I didn't want to follow my faith. I didn't want to be put into a box and told how I had to behave. Uh, and I was resentful of all of that pressure that my father had I tried to shield all me from. Of that.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, I was, you know, when when I graduated high school and went to college, I was like a punk rocker with a mohawk, playing in a you know, uh, playing in a band, playing electric guitar, and uh, really going. I was hitchhiking
0: around America, going to festivals. So I think we were on the same okay. uh, the same path. Yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I found I found a kindred spirit, and you know that that. That, that trip for me, you know, my father told me a story that I, I hadn't heard before. Uh, we were sitting and processing the events of the day, and he told me a story actually about the Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, who, for those who don't know, he, he was the, um, I think, the fifth Rebbe running the Chabad movement, the Lubavitch Hasidic movement, which is one of the largest and most significant Hasidic movements in the world. And he had gone to the Rebbe for a bracha, for a blessing. And, um, and the Rebbe had said, how's your son? And my father said, "Ah, oh, we're not getting along so great all the time. He's, he's in a very different place. And the rabbi gave him a, 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 the following blessing, which I learned about during that trip. He said to my father, uh, my blessing to you is that one day you will be proud of your son. Your son will be proud of you. And in that moment, you will both be proud of me. Which wow. was a, a really beautiful wow. story to, to, to have heard. And, and that trip in many ways really was the beginning of a trip back to uh, to Judaism and my heritage and what it meant to be a part of this family.
0: Identity. It's what everyone's looking for, something that you feel like you could identify with and belong to. And it goes back to what you said in the beginning, not just by rejecting something, but by actively embracing it. That it's uh, not just that I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not that, but to look at where you came from and say, ah, this is what I am. This is where I belong. It's a uh, A beautiful, beautiful thing.
1: Um, And sometimes maybe you need to get a little distance before you can see that more clearly, right? It's something I think about a lot when I'm trying to be patient with my own kids and their own journey of who they're going to end up becoming.
0: It's the blessing to choose. That if you never questioned, then you never really choose. If you never uh, left, you can never come back at your own at your own will and own it as your own so it's a it's a scary path it's a dangerous path but when it works you get people like alicia (laughs) weisel i've been reading a lot about how today we don't only hear about holocaust deniers but we hear even more so about the younger generation that just don't know anything about the holocaust and so um I think it represents a lot of failure failures on the world part. Um, but as far as that actual reality, that piece of data that many young people today don't even know about the Holocaust, how do you respond to that? And how do you think your father would have reacted?
1: I'm sure. I know he was disappointed. I think some of the statistics about how few Americans know what Auschwitz is yeah, uh, were already available while while he was still with us. And it was, I think, surprising to him. It was something, obviously, that we need to fix as a country um there's there's really no great answers for it i mean there are some fantastic groups that do great work facing history and others and in getting these curricula together and making them available for teachers but uh we just have to do more of it I'm, i'm not sure that there's any particularly great answer and of course we're running out of time in terms of talking to survivors who are still with us so that's that's a piece that that's not with us for much longer
0: It's a really good point. I remember when I was a child in Skokie growing up here in America, um, I would always be surrounded by Holocaust survivors because my grandfather, along with at least one grandparent of every single one of my friends was a survivor. Our bedtime stories were about how her grandparents survived or about their family that perished or all different aspects of their experience. Every person wanted to speak about a different side or to not speak about it at all, which in and of itself is speaking very loudly. Um, When you know your, your grandparent went through a Uh, horror like that and never speaks about it, that alone gives you a certain message. Um, But when I was being raised, I remember sitting on my friend's grandparents' lap or being at the Shabbat table with them, and it was a normal thing that almost every grandparent had a number on their arm. It was just a reality. And you'd ask a, a little bit about their story. Were they the only survivor? Did their siblings survive? Did their parents survive? I remember as a child, it was, um, it was, it was fascinating to me because I realized that it represented a whole other world, and I couldn't fathom a reality like that. But today, so many Holocaust survivors are dying no longer is it that the grandparents are Holocaust survivors, but if the children are lucky enough their great grandparents are alive to tell them this story. What do you think the younger generation needs to know about the Holocaust when we're talking about there's there needs to be a huge transformation in how we educate the next generation on the Holocaust. For our generation, Alicia, it was the stories of our parents and grandparents. It's no longer those personal stories. So what would you say is the main message that we could uh, give over to the next generation so that the values that have come from remembering the Holocaust uh, are kept alive?
1: Sure. Look, I think there's a few pieces to it. First of all, there's no substitute for primary texts. And, you know, my father left me instructions around his legacy, his literary legacy, and made it very clear that he did not want any movie adaptations of night. Uh, He never wanted somebody to turn it into a play. You know, He felt that when he was writing and someone was reading, he had a direct connection to his reader that transcended time. And that's why he was very, very passionate. He wanted his primary text to remain unadulterated, uninterpreted. So I think the power of primary text to continue moving people is profound. And we don't need to tell people what to think. I think if someone makes it cover to cover through night, They'll have talked to my father directly. Who are we to now tell them how to interpret that or, or what to what to make of it? If it moved them, it moved them, and hopefully in a deep way. I have a, a different question and or, or concern that you know I impose on on this, which is first of all, there's just the yes, there's this question of making sure that people are still reading night and learning the basics about the Holocaust. But somehow we have a generation of high schoolers who did this, continued on to college, and have seemingly concluded in a way that is occupying the dialogue on the college campus that even though you've read Knight and you may sympathize with the dead Jews, that now one is in a position to to endlessly criticize the one state that's a Jewish state on this planet where over six million Jews are living, not dead, six million Jews are living yeah. surrounded by what has historically been, you know, a sea of enemies trying to wipe them out. And this is a country that can do no right in, in unfortunately, in the eyes of many Holocaust educated young people on college campuses. And I think that one of the more distinctive things about my father's legacy that at times I'm worried about, because there are so many people who want to remember my father as a global figure who spoke up for human rights, which he did. He spoke up whether it was Sudan or whether it was the Soviet Union or whether it was Darfur. My father had a voice and used it for the entire world. But as we said earlier, he thought of himself as a good Jew. And to me, that meant, to him, that meant being part of his people. So he would speak up on behalf of Israel. And somehow that link, that if you really care for the Jewish people and you care for their future, not just remembering their past, that implies that at least if you're not going to be an explicit supporter of Israel, at least be very, very cautious when you demonize it, you know, yeah. or, or ascribe to it all sorts of things that sound like they're coming out of the conspiracy of the elders of Zion or, you know, the anti-Semitic protocols of a hundred years ago. So I, I, I want to put that, you know, very squarely in terms of the educational things I'm most worried about.
0: I love that, Alicia. What you said of uh, some, essentially, how I understood it was: sometimes it's easier to connect and support the dead Jews. <laughs> the ones that well, are that, living that are sometimes. Hard. That's right.
1: And 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 to be very clear, the phrase of you know remembering the dead Jews—that's Dara Horn, you know, and her, yeah, her tremendous work. Um, which you know, then then I think uh, Barry Weiss did a great job of taking some of those themes in her book about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So these are important issues, I think, for people to think about.
0: Very important, and I was actually just thinking about it. on, uh, we just celebrated the holiday of Purim, where we read the Book of Esther. And I was thinking about how you know today we celebrate what uh, Mordechai did and what Esther did. And but if today someone was standing up for their values so strongly that they wouldn't bow to the king, and by doing so put an entire community in danger, how would we respond to that today? Um, that very often, kind of in hindsight, when we have the full story, it's easy to say, okay. Good, bad, black, white, and and sometimes in the uh, reality that we're living now, those values get so skewed because of geopolitics or a lot of other considerations. But what I hear you saying, um, Alicia, is that is that your father's legacy uh, represents using his personal experience to stand up for all faiths, for all people, for all uh, persecuted groups needing to speak up, not be silent in that. And ultimately, for the Jewish people and what he experienced as a Jewish person in the Holocaust, standing with Israel is one of the most practical things we could do in remembering the lessons of the Holocaust.
1: Absolutely. My father was a proud humanitarian and he was also a proud Zionist. And, and I, by the way, Purim's my favorite holiday. So if you get me started on that, <laughs> we could talk for a long time. It was assimilated Jews, by the way, who were standing up for themselves. Look at their names. Mordechai is Marduk. Esther is Ishtar. They had assimilated names in ancient Persia. You know, these were, these were people who had to, to you know, come and despite all that, stand up for their people under intense pressure.
0: Yeah, it's, there are so many in, in these holidays that we just kind of sometimes take for granted. You know, I remember someone saying, uh, when you read the Bible, read the Bible as if you don't know the ending. <laughs> read the Bible as if you don't know the end of this story. Read it as if it's happening now. And then you could really understand the message of it. Read it as if it's a suspense novel that you don't know what's going to happen. And then you'll explore and, and discover new things each time that you read it and understand the real message. And 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 when I start to look at the holidays. Through those eyes, you get a whole different understanding. Like even Hanukkah, right? When you're talking about assimilation and standing up, I mean, it's uh, uh, you have the huge Greeks and the Maccabees. Uh, everyone's assimilated. Everyone's saying, "Just do what they tell you, and everything will be good." Okay? They don't want to kill us for the, they just want to kill our faith, but that's okay—not our bodies. And that there's a group of people who come and say, "These are my red lines. These are my values. I'm going to make sure that that my faith survives." Um, and sometimes in real time without knowing the ending, that can be very scary and uncertain. So um, that's why red lines are so important.
1: I love, I love what you just said because it also gets me thinking about the calendar in relation to Yom HaShoah itself. Of course, there are two days in the calendar that observe the Holocaust. There's the kind of conventional, um, you know, I'll call it the Western observation of, of the Holocaust, which is January 27th each year, International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is, I believe, the day that the Russians came into Auschwitz and Auschwitz was finally liberated, which is an important moment. It's the, it's the moment in which the Jews and and the other people being oppressed were rescued. But of course, the day which Israel chooses to use to commemorate the Shoah, the Holocaust, is the 27th of the Hebrew month of Nisan in the spring, which is the day that the Warsaw ghetto resistance began when a small band of Jews effectively drew their own red line and said, you know what, we deserve to live. And if no one else is coming to help us, we are going to take up arms. And, you know, that that first time that the Israeli Magain David flew on a flag, you know, during the Warsaw ghetto resistance, I think that that's why Israel chose that day. I say, this is our red line. We're going to exist, like it or not.
0: It's beautiful. That's really what the state of Israel represents today. We're no longer a weak community that doesn't know how to defend itself, that doesn't know how to stand up for these rights and values and, and, uh, and, and is kind of trusting and semi-assimilated into the world and the state of Israel represents we want to be a light to the nations we want to help others we're the leaders in humanitarian care we're the leaders and as soon as there's any sort of crisis even amongst our enemies we're the first to offer support um in every way we train for uh for all humanitarian disasters and help other countries do that we provide aid but but there's uh there's a strength in being able to say, this is our red line. We're the Jewish state, the Jewish people. And as long as you could be okay with that and not try to destroy that, we're here to help you and be enlightened to the nations. But we have a right to live. And as simple as that sounds, it's a historic new reality.
1: And And of course, to be a nation means that one has to govern, and governing is not easy, and, and it can never be perfect, and that's the nature of democracies. But I'll tell you, um, Israel's not the only country that my father felt that passion for. He was a profoundly, profoundly loyal and devoted American citizen. Yes. Um, you know, I have to tell you, I have memories of coming back from abroad with my father, and we would come into JFK. And the customs officer would say to him, welcome home. I don't know if they still say that. I don't think they do as often, but he would say, welcome home. And it was one of the few times I would remember my father actually, like, his eyes getting a little teary, wow. you know. Wow. Um, it moved him that somebody would say, welcome home, He had, wow. who had been stateless for so long.
0: That is so beautiful and so important to remember. As as we're talking about all these different areas of Holocaust remembrance and Israel and uh, and, and the Jewish people having a home and a belonging and an identity, I I, I in ev- all these areas, what is so strong to me is the work of the Fellowship, where we have for the first time in history millions of Christians who stand by the our side in those values of saying, yes, you deserve a country. Yes, we stand with the Jewish people and and we share these values and the Judeo-Christian values. And and for me, being in Israel and at least twice a year visiting the former Soviet Union on fellowship work, to go and bring just a simple food box or wood for heat or medicine to Holocaust survivors and to be able to say, This is donated by Christians who love you, who stand with you, who are praying for you, who are providing for you. I think all of these lessons and visions and hopes of your father, in so many ways, this is the fruition and tangible outcome of of what he saw of Working together, of being um, a light into the nations and being held up by other people, Christians with values, with uh, biblical faith, and standing together, each as their own, but together.
1: I mean, it's just incredible, beautiful work that you and this community are accomplishing.
0: I know that not too long ago you gave a speech at one of the uh, largest churches, most historic churches in uh, Washington DC that, that for the first time there was a Jewish person your father engraved on the walls of this church. Can you tell us just a little bit about that?
1: That was it was a very it was a very moving day, I have to tell you. And and Dean Randy Hollerith and the rest of the Washington National Cathedral team were were unbelievable. You know, it was not an easy decision for our family to say yes. There is, as you know, an injunction against graven images uh, in the Big Ten Commandments. And, you know, it's, it's one that I thought a lot about. How would my father feel about his having a graven image in a church? And they were incredibly flexible. We, we found that there were certain rabbinic interpretations that the way that you could still have stonework with a face is if you put a blemish on it. So mm-hmm. we actually had the, the stonemason, you know, with the church's agreement, uh, there's a small blemish down at the base of the statue so that it's it's indicated this is a flawed work and not you know really meant to be a a graven image Um, they were incredibly flexible about that and look they were very patient with me i came with a very specific message to the cathedral Uh, i i had a big concern that my father would be remembered purely for his global work and i gave a very zionist speech in that moment um, and I, I, don't know that it's what they expected, but I would say that they tolerated it, um, and, and heard what I had to say.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. We're definitely in a time with all the darkness in the world. Um, and and you can look around and say we are still in the dead of night with the rise in anti-Semitism and so much uh, Holocaust denial. And, and you, you just see all of these negative things against the Jewish community rearing its familiar but ugly head again. and 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 for me, what I see every day is the light within that, that for the first time, though, you also have millions of people, mostly Christians around the world, from Korea to uh, Brazil to, of course, all across America, who are saying, we stand with Israel and the Jewish people, and we recognize the the most basic, the right to exist. But even more than that, we're going to love you and stand with you in uh, in your pursuit, of course, for Israel. And as I see for the humanitarian aid and bringing Jewish people home from the former Soviet Union, um, which which for me is it's I realized I was in one way born into this situation. But dare I take it as a given for even one second, because never in the history of the Jewish people, of course, you have the um, you have the the righteous of the gentiles the righteous of the nations who during the holocaust hid and and saved so many jewish lives but now we have millions of those not even during our time of crisis but in normal times who are standing with us strong bold loud fearless to say as a christian i stand with israel and the jewish people that for me is just uh historic
1: yeah it's it's absolutely amazing and it makes me think boy and and now what if we could get all the jews to agree on that too (laughs)
0: ah may may it may it come soon (laughs) may it come soon so um alicia i i appreciate all of your time all of your wisdom and i i could speak to you for hours i've so much so much more that i want to hear from you um but but let's end with this question here um we're all focused on again this Another historic moment in history that we're living in with the current situation in the world where Europe and the people of Ukraine are experiencing aggression that has not been witnessed since World War II. It's something that I think is on everyone's mind. What do you think that your father's message would be to us today?
1: My God, what a a deep, open-ended question. And there's so many directions I could go with it. I'm going to pick one. I don't know if it's the right one to share, but I'm just going to pick one, which is I think we live in a time where if you were to look at modern media, particularly in the United States over the last four to eight years, and you listen to everybody complaining about this country and how horrible it is to live under capitalism, how horrible it is to live in a democracy, all the terrible things we're doing and how imperfect we are. All the endless self-criticism, and by the way, some of it, you know, is reasonable criticism. We're always trying to improve. But if you think about that, and then you look at this quick reminder that actually, no, like there is something much worse than de- democ- you know, democracy and capitalism, and and look at it. It's called the outright invasion by one country of another on the basis of lies uh, to to serve an autocrat, and you just. Put it in perspective for a moment. And the thing that I want to share with you from my father is one of the few times that I remember my father getting impatient with me as a parent. And it was 1991, 1992. I'm I'm somewhere in there. And there was a certain amendment that was before the Supreme Court. And I think it was in the first George Bush administration, the father. And the amendment was that it should be illegal to uh, burn the flag. That was the amendment. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had just come home from freshman year in college, and I was sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table with my father, and I was going on saying, you know, it's, it's the ability to burn the flag shows why we are a great nation, and, and, you know, that this is, it's totally should be protected free speech. And my father got very silent, and he got a very a dark look on his face. And he said to me in probably the sternest voice he'd ever used, he said, if you knew what that flag meant to those of us who saw it coming in Buchenwald. If you knew what it meant, when I think about the veterans, if when I think about the people who died, that I should be liberated, you should know that America represents something great. Mm. And if you knew what I knew or could feel what I felt, you would never say those words again. And I give that to you as a small thought, a small offering on how to contextualize and have some perspective on just how lucky we are.
0: Yeah, yes, yeah. It is an important thought that I think needs um, nothing to follow that up. If we could all just internalize that message, we would be in a much better place as a nation, as a country, as a people. So thank you so much, Alicia. I know a lot of our listeners are going to want more of your wisdom and follow what you're working on. How can they find you?
1: Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I have a very small following on Twitter. I really just, uh, I'm trying to moderate my use of that platform yet still learn more about it. But uh, if, you, if you Google me, you'll find things that I'm writing. I'm, I'm often putting out op-eds.
0: Outstanding. So, everyone go and Google Alicia Weisel and follow how he's continuing his father's beautiful, important, relevant message and bringing it to this generation that needs it so bad. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you for joining me. I learned a lot, and I know everyone uh, listening is inspired, encouraged, and has the tools to carry out this very huge mission that your father has entrusted on all of us.
1: And that your father has entrusted on you. I am a a profound admirer of IFCJ and your community. And thank you for all that you do.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Conversations with Yael podcast. If you like what you have heard, please check out my weekly podcast, Nourish Your Biblical Roots, that explores the Jewish roots of the Christian faith with inspirational and ancient teachings. You can also visit me at mybiblicalroots.org for more of my teachings, videos, blogs, and books. Follow me on Instagram at Yael underscore Eckstein or on Facebook at Yael Eckstein. Shalom and see you next month.